1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're looking at verses, uh, mainly uh, verses 7 on down, but we're going to go back to verse 3. You who have a little age on you will remember the little rascal show. And maybe even some of the younger can remember those cute little people. Uh, if you have never seen them, or even if you have, if you want to give yourself a, about a five minutes of joy today, go back and, and look on YouTube and play uh, a Little Rascals uh, episode, one of the shorts. And I'd recommend you start with the one called, and probably one of their most famous, the He-Man Woman Haters Club. Uh, in that little thing that Spanky and Alfalfa and Buckwig had been offended by the women in their life, and so they decide to start a club for men only, and in uh, the sign out front, and by the way, you can buy t-shirts for this if you want to get them on uh, Amazon and wear them around. I don't recommend it, but uh, it's called the He-Man Woman Haters Club. And you could only get in there if you were a, a man or, uh, and also you had to know the secret code, which is a hand signal. And I'll show that to you in private. But you don't need to know that right now. But... Nevertheless, uh, the, the president of the club was Spanky, of course. Alfalfa was the second president, and Buckwick was the third president. And uh, some today think that their honorary first president ought to be the Apostle Paul. After all, he's a woman hater, isn't he? I mean, look at all this passage that we just read and other passages in Scripture that seem to imply that Paul had a problem with women. Uh, maybe he had a rough mother. Maybe he had a, a, a domineering wife who left him, and we don't know anything about him. Uh, maybe he had some other conflicts, but he wrote some pretty rough things about women in the New Testament. So perhaps he is uh, one who is uh, a woman hater and belongs in the He-Man Woman Hater Club, maybe even as the president. Well, uh, that's kind of funny stuff in a way, but it's not funny when it becomes reality, not only in the world today, but in the church itself. Uh, Alvira Mickelson wrote uh, in a book called uh, Women in Ministry, Four Views, and she says this concerning the, the issue that these positions that uh, Paul mentions in the New Testament regarding the church and in the home, she says this, uh, some, some believe that these restrictions are God-ordained. I believe they're the result of sin and cultural influences. Uh, she goes on to say, men have been socialized to see themselves as the head of the houses. Her views, while gaining popularity today, are certainly out of step with Christianity and Judaism going all the way back. But the problem with Mickelson's view and, uh, is she's got a bigger view with the scriptures themselves than she does with the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul did not originate these teachings. He, did, he didn't come up with this because he had a, a bad home life. Uh, he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. He was a spokesman for God. The Holy Spirit breathed out God's word. Uh, Paul was an instrument to write it down and give it to us. And so our job is not to dismiss it or, or remove it. Our job is to understand it and live it. And that's a very different view than some have today. Just on time for this sermon, I got an email from Christianity Today, always my favorite Christian organization, uh, right, middle-of-the-road uh, evangelical group. There's a new conference going on called Reimagining Women, uh, Biblical Womanhood or Womanhood. And uh, it says this, from patriarchal interpretations of scriptures to contemporary incidents of hashtag MeToo abuse, Christian women often are treated as second-class citizens in the church. Yet throughout history has been their, their tireless contributions that have kept Christianity vital and active in society. The whole church suffers when women's voices are silenced, and both men and women miss out when, when women are unable 
to fully develop and exercise their gifts. And so for a lively discussion on women's roles in the church from the perspective of history and theology and practical ministry, uh, I've been invited to attend this conference, which would really be good for my blood pressure probably. <laughs> Uh, of the six women that are the speakers, six or five or six women, uh, several of them are pastors, all are claimed to be biblical scholars. They're all part of some kind of quasi-evangelical church or uh, seminary or organization. Uh, they're professors of history and theology and so forth, and uh, they are going to show us the way uh, in which Paul and the scriptures have led us astray. Now, how did all this come about, especially in Christian circles? What, what took place? Uh, Mickelson goes on to say this, most of the restrictions on women are based on the misuse of the interpretation of the two words in writings of Paul, head and authority. And we looked at some of that last week. Now these are heavy accusations. It is because of such challenges to the word of God, challenges to what the church has always believed and taught, and Judaism as well, it's because of these challenges that we're taking time to look at this today. Uh, we're digging in deeply into things that normally we probably wouldn't. And we're doing that because it's in God's Word. And it's right in, it's, it's part of the series here. It's what God wants us to teach as we go through a book of the Bible. But also it's pertinent, it's up to date. Uh, 50 years ago that this message might look different than it is today as we look at the challenges. But the principles have not changed. They've never changed, they never will change. And that's what we'll base our discussion on today. Matter of fact, the first book I ever read when I came out of Bible college uh, when I could read a book that I wanted to read instead of what I was told to read. Uh, the first book I read was a book called Future Shock. Some of you might remember that. That book was, a, was showing how the world is changing so rapidly and, and predicting how that change would change the world in the days to come, and many of that has come about. Today, if there's a sequel could be written, we might find, call it Future Shock in the Evangelical Church. How rapidly the Evangelical Church is changing in many, many ways. Now, of course, I'm not against change. Some change is good. Within the parameters of Scripture, uh, we change as, as we should, but only within the parameters of Scripture. The question is never, is it faddish? Is it popular? Is it what people want to hear? The question is always, is it biblical? Is it in alignment with what God teaches in His Word? So with all that in mind, I want to go back uh, to these verses and review a little bit of where we were last week and try to, to lay out these principles for us. Uh, so I'm not going to turn to the passages. We did that last week. And you can go back and look at the, uh, the, uh, the manuscript, which is on our, our internet, our website. Not our website, but our uh, network. And also this manuscript is on the network. The, you can get the sermon itself if you want to. But let me very quickly review. Galatians chapter 3 verse 28 tells us that in Christ we're all equal. Everyone is the same in Christ. We all come to Christ the same way, by faith alone. We all are equal in Christ. There's no difference between men and women, no difference between ethnic, ethnicity, no difference between social status. We're all the same in God's eyes in that regard. There, God has no teacher pets. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 to 15, and Ephesians 5, 23 to 33, we find that nevertheless God has designed that men and women have different roles in the church and in the home. 1 Timothy talks about the leadership and the authority of, of men within the church, and only men are to teach uh, the Bible and theology uh, to uh, other men within the body of Christ. They're the leading prayer as well. Ephesians chapter 5 talks about leadership in the home. 
and how the husband is to be the loving leader of the home, as uh, modeled after the, the love of Christ, and how they are to, uh, and the wife is to, to follow that leadership in the home. In ch chapter 11, verse 3 of our 1 Corinthians passage, where it says that uh, Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of the woman, and God is the head of Christ, he is he's saying here that God has designed his universe along the lines of authority and submission. He's not saying, by the way, that, that the son is inferior to the father, that the son has a different will than the father and must submit. If you notice the word there is not the son, but Christ, the word for his incarnational form. When he was on earth, he followed the will of the father and continues to follow the will of the father while he was on earth. And this is not an eternal uh, distinction between the father and the son. They're absolutely equal. They have the same will. But while on earth, Jesus would say, not my will, but thine be done. But that's the design that God has, the authority submission within his church. Verses 4 to 6, or in the church and in the home. In 11, 4 to 6, he says, in essence, that, uh, that we are not to mirror the world, uh, that we are instead to be lights that shine forth God's truth to the world. The church is to be built on God's designs and not the world's. So actually, verses 3 to 16 of this passage is a polemic. It's an argument that Paul is bringing forth to support what he's saying here. And he addresses uh, some specific issues. Now, we don't know all the specifics here. We don't know all the details of what Paul was dealing with uh, specifically within the church. But we know this, that there was disruption and disorder in the church based upon what some of the women in the church were doing. And Paul is addressing that at the church of Corinth. And as he points out God's design of leadership and submission, he uses four arguments to support his view and his point, which is inspired by God. The first one we looked at last time, and we'll review a little bit more, is based upon God's design. His first argument is the, is the design of God. Let me read verse, three, or verse 4 to you. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. And every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same with the woman whose head is shaved. For if the woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. For it is, but it is a disgrace, if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. Now we're still reviewing. And we're going to admit, as we did last week, we don't know all the details concerning this head covering situation and the hair issue. There's things here that we don't know. And I, I read articles and people send me things that people supposedly have found this, that, or the other, but quite frankly, those are dime a dozen, and we don't know some of the details here. But we know some eternal principles. Eternal principles. I want to I lay out very quickly for you four eternal principles that never change, no matter what time, what culture, what situation. Four principles. Number one, that believers should be careful about bringing the world into the church. That's one of the principles he's saying here. That we are called to be lights in the world, not mirrors of the world. And we be, must be very careful about bringing the, what the world is, is trumpeting at this moment into the church of Jesus Christ. And we have a tendency to do that just in lockstep, just a few years behind uh, what the world is doing. Number two, eternal principle. Don't look and act like unbelievers if you don't want to be confused with one. All right, so the battle cry today is don't judge me. Don't look at my appearance and judge me by my, by my appearance. Fair enough. Um, but keep in mind 
that while we need to be cautious there and gracious, but keep in mind, God says, I look at the heart, man looks at the outside. If, if you don't want to be confused with rebellious people, don't dress like a rebellious person. If you don't want to be confused as someone who is in disobedience to God, don't dress like someone who is disobedient to God. Uh, don't act like an unbeliever and dress like an unbeliever and do the things unbelievers do and then expect people to not think you're an unbeliever. That would be an eternal principle. Number three, concerning gender roles, there are some difference of opinion here on the details, but again the principle is clear. Men should look like men and women should look, look like women. Men should act like men and women should act like women. And I know that's a strange statement in our culture today, but it's a biblical statement. It's an eternal principle that God gives in his word. And then fourth, while there's a lot of pushback right now concerning women being pastors and, uh, and elders and so forth in churches today, the, the view of the scriptures and the view of the church throughout the ages, including Judaism, has always been that... Uh, that the leadership roles in spiritual things and in the home has been given to, to men by God's design. Nothing has changed. There's been no new scholarship. There's been no new books of the Bible found. Nothing in the Bible has been found. All that's changed is culture. And uh, the church sometimes is simply trying to catch up with culture, and that's not a good idea. Now these texts that we're looking at today and, and last week are called by Allison Barr, one of the ladies that's going to be speaking at that conference I just mentioned. She calls them texts of terror because they terrorize women, she claims, and keeps them from being what they ought to be. But I want you to note that uh, the, the teaching that we're looking at today is not based simply on a few texts of scripture. It is the, t the tenure of everything in the Bible. Just think for a moment. Go back to the Old Testament. Every uh, uh, leader of the Old Testament, every patriarch, every king, every priest, every author of scripture, every book of the Bible, they were written and led by men. That's the Old Testament picture. In the New Testament, we have the same thing. Jesus chose 12 apostles. All those apostles were men. Jesus uh, chose elders and pastors and so forth for his churches, and all those were to be men. Very clear in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. Every book of the New Testament, all 27 of them, were written by men. Now unless we want to accuse God of somehow being a woman hater, uh, the tenure of all of Scripture, or, or even God following the culture of his days, of the days when these things were written, if we think Jesus is a, a coward in his day, and the Father is a coward throughout all of history, unless we believe that, we believe that God has given us eternal truths and eternal principles. It's not based on a few texts of terror. It's based upon the whole picture of the Word of God. Second argument that Paul uses, now we're moving into new territory, starting with verse 7, and that is based upon the order of creation. Let me read verse 7 to you. For a man ought not to have a head, his head covered, since he is in the image and the glory of God, but the woman is the, is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but women, a woman from man. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but a woman for man's sake. Now drop down to verse 11. However, in the Lord neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. 
For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So what's the principle? What's the point? The point is this, right from the very beginning, as part of the created order, God has intended that women, especially in marriage and within spiritual leadership, uh, be submissive to the, their husbands at home and the leadership within the local church and spiritual things. The man is designed, it says here in this passage, to reflect the glory of God but being the kind of leader that God wants him to be, a leader who follows the example of the shepherding of Christ, the, a leader who follows the example of the love of Christ in the home as Christ loves his bride, the church, Men are given, we are, we are to reflect the glory of God by following in that example in the footsteps of Jesus. The woman, in, uh, on the other hand, is designed to reflect the glory of God by submitting to that kind of leadership in the home, if she has it, and within the church as she's involved with it. I want you to note that uh, Paul grounds his argument here not in culture but in nature or creation. This is the way it was created to be right from the very beginning. Now Owen Stan tells us that in a new book that he has that Corinth was a major center of the Dionysian cult, a, a, a religion where males would don female clothing in the imitation of a god itself who did the same thing. So following the god that the people were worshiping and put on female clothing. And so that could have been some of the backdrop of what Paul's talking about here. The woman was created to be a helper to her husband, to compliment him, not to control him, to make up for his weaknesses, not to rebel against him because of his weaknesses. What a, what a radical idea, huh? How, how clear is scripture, how, how different our homes and our lives and our churches would be if we followed what God has for us here. On the other hand, it's very clear, men are dependent upon women as well. Uh, we, we are birthed from women. We need each other. Men are not to become dictators. Women are not called to be doormats. This is not the teaching he has here. Don't take these things further than what God intended. But keep in mind, it was the man who needed a helpmate, and Eve uh, was given to meet the need of Adam, who was a lonely person, and needed someone to fellowship with and to share his life with. And so God in his design has created men and women to need one another. He has created us to uh, certain functions, responsibilities, and roles, but he's created, uh, created us to need one another. Here's a third argument based on angels. Verse 10 is certainly an odd verse. Therefore the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. What in the world does that mean? Well, uh, we don't know. Okay, so we'll move on to point four. Uh, well, actually, I got a couple ideas. Okay, here's some good suggestions as to what he meant by this. Number one, angels also live under authority. We know from Scripture there's a hierarchy of angels, that, that angels have a, an authority structure. Some angels are over other angels, and therefore, if angels can live in this way, then why can't we live? in this way. God designed the angelic world to be in this authority submission uh, dynamic as well as human beings. And so if, because of the angels uh, doing the same, why can't we? And keep in mind, almost everybody agrees Satan's fall was a result of his wanting to be like God 
And according to Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, he wanted to be like God, and he rebelled against the role that God put him on in, even though it seemed to be the highest of all angelic beings. Nevertheless, he rebelled, and as a result of that, he became the devil himself. The second possibility is that angels observe our conduct, and we find that in Scripture. Angels are observing our conduct. They're involved with us in ways that we would never know uh, unless Scripture told us, and they are offended by us when we do not follow the design of God. And so for, the, for that reason, uh, and maybe the two overlapping reasons, it's said because of angels. So I think you can consider that. Now number four, the fourth argument is from nature. And this is where a lot of people kick back. Judge for yourself, verse 13, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not God even, now let me stop for just a second. I'm going to talk about this issue of praying and prophesying by women on Wednesday night. So Wednesday night we're going to do a Q&A. We're going to dig into some things I'm not doing here. So if you're interested in that, come Wednesday night. If you can't be here, you can watch live stream. It's there. Also, this little booklet, The Role of Women in the Church, uh, that I've written covers about five times more than anything I'm doing here on Sunday morning. And they're out there in the foyer in that rack there, some of them. If we run out of them, we can make more. So if you're really interested in that, it's also on our website, uh, totministries.org, and you can read those articles. There's three articles there. So if you want to dig in deeper, there they are. But let's go back to this passage for a moment. This is a tough one. Verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it's dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, it is a glory for her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. A woman's hair in all ages and in all cultures, just about, has been considered an ornament, a mark of her beauty, enhancing of her beauty, a mark of her femininity, a mark that she's a woman. And that's not historically and normally been true of men. There are exceptions, I'm sure, but uh, that's not the, what nature, it says, teaches us here. The specific concern at Corinth is unknown to us. We don't know exactly what's going on. We know there's disruption in the church. We know that some of the women were causing uh, problems, disruptions, and so forth in the church. That's what he's dealing with. Kevin DeYoung talks about this in his book on the subject. Uh, he says, what is Paul saying? He's saying it's a shame for a man to try to look like a woman or for a woman to try to look like a man. Even nature teaches us this, and he's using nature as the way God has ordained things. So keep in mind, when he says nature, he's not talking about mother nature. Mother nature is a humanistic in, uh, creation. There is, no, there is no mother nature. If you find her, let me know. I'd like to have a couple talks with her, especially recently. There is no mother nature. God is the creator of all nature. He's speaking then about how God has designed this nature, this world to be. And so he's going back to what God has created, what God has put in place. And he's saying, does not nature that God has designed even teach you these things? Owen Strand has said in his book on this, on this subject, uh, to help Christian women understand their identity, the apostle called the women to differentiate herself from the man by having long hair. Verse 14. Men and women should not look the same. Here's the eternal principle. Gender is not to be blurred. 
We're not to blur gender. Oh, that is out of sync with our society, isn't it? Stick that on your Facebook account and see how long you stay up. <laughs> Probably not long. God does not want the blending of these things. There's the principle. As the Corinthians looked around them, we don't know all the details, but we know that involved with the society there, especially with the temple worship, there were homosexual communities there that were the male prostitutes wore long hair. And they, they put it up like women would and perfumed it and made themselves look like women. There were uh, uh, lesbian prostitutes and, and priestesses at the temples as well. They shaved their heads. Uh, they shaved their heads uh, to uh, reverse the role and look more like men. And so we have those things going on that we know about at Corinth. And Paul is probably writing in that context. Transgender expression and gender confusion directly counter the nature of God, is what he's saying. Again, out of touch with our society, way out of touch, and getting more out of touch day by day by what the scriptures teach. So it's appalling to find out that just recently uh, there has been an appointee to the U.S. Department of Energy. Uh, of a man who dresses in evening gowns, wears makeup, has very red lipstick, but has also chosen to shave his head and, and, uh, wear, and have a mustache. He's a high official in the administration. He's also into very kinky things that I don't even want to talk about. And yet he has now been appointed by our president in the energy department high up. Now, folks, I don't know about you. I don't want to be too nasty here. I'm mean-spirited. But you walk into a room and you see a man, a transvestite, who's dressed like a woman with big red lipstick and an evening gown and a mustache and a bald head. And if you think that's normal, if you think that's what nature would, would create, uh, I don't know what nature you're talking about. I think almost anybody in any culture would take a look and say, wow, something's out of kilter here. But who's going to say it? Who's going to deal with it? Well, God is. And, God, and so we don't back away from what God says. We do not, as Christians, blur genders. Gender is not fluid, as this particular individual teaches, where gender can flow back and forth, and we can choose what our gender is. God assigns our gender, and God wants us to live out our gender. And that is his biblical teaching 101. And yet it's out of touch, again, with what we're seeing more and more today. Now, don't get hung up on the length of hair. Sometimes people get hung up on that. Some of you don't worry about that. You don't have any hair. But um, there's been a lot of cultural wars on this. There's probably been a few forests cut down uh, for paper to talk about this subject. Uh, don't get too upset about that. Different cultures at different times have had different ideas about the length of hair. And uh, we could argue about that for a long, long time. Uh, don't go by the pictures that we have of Jesus and the apostles and their hair. Uh, we don't know what their hair looked like either. Uh, no, there was no pictures at the time, by the way. So we, we, uh, we want to be careful with that. Don't get hung up on that. That's a side issue. Uh, the issue, however, is very clear. Is God, wanted you, God wants you to look like and act like the gender he created you to be. Not something else. While we're at it, we should touch very quickly on this issue of covering again. Seven different times in our verses, it speaks of having a covering on the head. And um, 
depending on your translation, they'll be translated that way, not always. But let me look real quickly, real quickly, at these different words. The first word is verse 4, which is simply kata, and means coming down. And so it doesn't speak of anything on the head. It speaks of something coming down from the head, which most likely, almost certainly, would be something like hair. Uh, In verse 5, and later on in verse uh, 13, uh, we have another word that means to, was translated uncovered. It also comes from a derivative of kata and head, speaking of something coming down from the head. In verse 6 and in verse 7, there's a word also derivative of kata, which means a, a covering of some kind. Verse 10 doesn't really use that word. Verse 10 uses the word authority, a symbol of authority. That's a standard Greek word throughout all the New Testament that uh, should be consistently translated authority, not covering, but some translations do that. And 13 I've already mentioned. Verse 15 is the stickler. It says, but if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair has been given to her as a covering, and that is translated the exact same way as the others, but it's a totally different Greek word, and it means a veil. It's the only passage in, only word of the seven that means a veil. So he's not talking earlier about wearing a veil. Now we know in that culture some people did wear veils as a symbol of submission. Uh, and that was, and that's true still today in some places. Uh, Paul's not addressing that. I don't think Paul's upset. If somebody wants to wear a veil, go ahead and wear a veil. I don't think he would care too much about that. But that's not the word he's using here. Uh, he is saying here, he's, and it's not the word certainly for a hat. So wearing a hat or a cloth on the head does not uh, meet the requirements of what he's saying here. Uh, he, is, he is talking about not that at all. And he says in verse 15, that it, what, what does he say is the covering? What does he say is, is instead of a veil? He says her hair. And so this is the only place that addresses this, and I think the best answer he see ta- is talking about hair. He's talking about, once again, the principle that women are to look like a woman and men should look like men, and those distinctions should be kept clear. Now, I'm glad that these things, to some degree, are ambivalent and confusing to us because Paul is not giving us a first century dress code. And aren't you glad? You know, he's not like the, he's not an Amish, where Amish picked out the 17th century culture and said, well, we're all going to dress like this forever. We're all going to look like this. We're going to, we're going to freeze time in the 17th century at not for no, no good reason, just because we want to, and we're all going to look like this forever. He didn't do that, and I'm so glad he didn't. He didn't say all cultures at all times have to wear the same clothing and so forth. What he says, and this is the principle, don't miss the principle. Men should look like men, and women should look like women, and especially should represent those things, our gender that God has designed us to be in our home and in our churches. That much we know, and that is what he's saying. Well, go over to chapter 14. We've got to look at one more text of terror here. Chapter 14, this is even worse. Same book, a few chapters later, verses 34 to 36. Somebody said, why aren't you wearing a black suit today? (laughs) Well, I kind of like this subject, and I am wearing a black shirt and a black tie. So for those that are really concerned about that, 
I thought I'd throw that out. Anyway, verse 34. The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but they are to, to subject themselves as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God first went forth, or was, our, has it come to you only? So Paul looks at this particular issue later in the church. We don't, again, we don't know all the details, but we know this. The women in the church, from the context of chapters 12 to 14 actually, the women in the church, some of them were disrupting the church. Some were causing true issues in the church in one way or the other. And Paul is addressing that at this time. And he commands the women three times in these verses to be silent in the church. So the question is, what does he mean by that? So it's very important that we know. Okay, so let's take a look. First of all, some very solid evangelical scholars have tried to get around this with some very flimsy arguments. For example, Gordon Fee has says uh, Paul is, uh, uh, is propagating a notion that this passage is, or he's propagating a notion that this passage is textually suspect. That is, Fee is saying this passage may not actually be in the Bible. Somebody might have implanted it there. But there's no textual evidence whatsoever of that being true. This is in the Bible. And we can't get around it by saying it isn't. We have to deal with it. A second uh, scholar, Walter Kaiser, whom I appreciate a lot of many, many things, uh, took an interesting approach. He says he thinks these are quotes by the Corinthians themselves. That the Corinthians are, are saying women keep silent in the church and Paul's going to correct them. But there's no evidence whatsoever that the Corinthians are saying something that Paul is correcting. And if he is, he doesn't correct them very clearly. And so I think that's a bad argument. The most common argument today, and this is finding its way into evangelicalism more and more, is that Paul either contradicts 1 Corinthians 11, where he allows women to prophesy and pray in the churches, or he changed his mind by the time he got to chapter 14. So that's an interesting thought too, right? So what, what would we say about that? What, what do we know? First of all, the silence that he commands here is not absolute. He's not saying women come into the church service, sit down and don't say a word. He's not saying we can't interact and discuss things. He's not, he's saying, we, he's not saying we can't sing up here. He's not saying those kinds of things. It's not absolute because in chapter 11 he said twice, you know, on two occasions women are, are to prophesy and pray covered and so you can't prophesy and pray without speaking so the absolute there's no absolute command here that women cannot be involved in any speaking role so what is he saying well the solution is to be found again I think again in the context there is this huge disruption going on in the church and that disruption in the church could be over one of two issues in the context, tongues and prophecy. Concerning tongues, we find that this whole section, really all chapter 14, deals with tongues in one way or the other. is being abused and misused. And we'll get to that here in the future. But as they, as they were doing that, Paul is saying, you women are disrupting the church by speaking out loud during the services in tongues that nobody understands, and you need to be silent. That's a possibility. But I think the closer context is actually concerning prophecy or revelation and the disorder in that. Look at verse 33. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
Uh, God, so here's his immediate context. God does not bring disruption to the body of Christ. He doesn't have worship services or gatherings of God's people who come together and are so disrupted and so confusing that we don't know what each other are saying. And we get nothing out of the word and out of the service itself. God is not the author of confusion. That is not his, his, what he does. And so if that is what he's talking about here, I think he's talking then about the issue of self-control and judging of revelation. We'll talk about that more later on, but he is saying there must be control here. There must be self-control within the church. And so he gets very specific. Apparently, as best we can gather, what was going on here is that certain women in the church, hopefully not all, but certain women were standing up at services or whatever, speaking up, challenging with questions or, or statements the leaders of the church. And they were doing it in disrespectful ways, in such a way that they were, were dishonoring their, their husbands, dishonoring the church leadership. And so he's saying to these people at this time, he's saying, you must not do that. Matter of fact, if you have questions, uh, then you are to take those questions home and ask your husbands. Now this again is not absolute because not every Christian woman has a Christian, Christian husband. Not every Christian woman is married. Not every Christian woman has a Christian husband who, who loves and really walks with the Lord. So this is a general statement. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't disrupt the services. Go home. Talk to your husband. That doesn't mean you can't call the pastor or elder later in the week. Say, could you explain that more? It doesn't mean that there can't be true interaction, but it must be respectful, honoring interaction. It must not be disruption. It must not be chaos. It must not be disrespectful to the leadership in the church. Paul, Paul says on this, as I go on down, he says, but, but verse 34, but are subject themselves just as the law also says. Paul grounds his argument in the Old Testament scriptures. The word law is not always referring to the Ten Commandments or the law of Moses. It often refers to the whole picture of the Old Testament scriptures. And what Paul is saying, the scriptures in the Old Testament all taught the same thing. Nothing has changed. The law, this teaching is grounded in the Old Testament revelation as well. The law required women not to occupy a place of authority over men. That goes all the way back to Genesis 2. And Paul is simply saying that women in the Old Testament followed that design or should have, and we are too as well. Verse 34, the women are to keep silent in the churches. They are not permitted to speak. He is speaking here in the sphere of, uh, of authority. Now, he's not saying that necessarily these women are trying to be pastors or leaders of the church, but he's saying they're usurping the authority of these men by their behavior and by their questions. Verse 35, if they desire to learn anything, let them ask at home. Proper for a woman to speak in church. Was it from you that the word of God went forth? Or has it come to you only? Are you, the, are you the only interpreters of scripture? Did you receive revelation that is contrary to the rest of the church? The rest of what the, what the inspired apostles have given us? He says you have not. This is the teaching that, that God gave to the apostles, through all the church, at all places, at all times. Let me back up now. Here's the principle. He's not saying women cannot be involved in many leadership roles of the church, but they cannot 
have leadership over men in the church. They're not to teach the, the scriptures over men in the church. And they are not to disrupt and be disrespectful to the leadership of the local church or to their husbands. Those are the teachings that the Lord gives us. On the other hand, men, and this should be a joy to you if you love Christ and his word. Men are to lead God's church as shepherds, teaching the, the, the body of Christ, feeding the body of Christ, following the example of Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd. Men are to lead their homes in love. They're to love their wives as Christ loves the church. There's no higher bar. There's no greater example. Women then should willingly, voluntarily, submit to that leadership. Submission is not, can never be forced. You can make somebody do something, but you cannot change their attitude or their hearts. Women who love Christ and His Word will want to be in alignment with Christ. They will want to follow that leadership of their husband. They'll want to follow the leadership of the local church. When a husband is leading his wife with, with the love of Christ, what woman would not want to follow the teachings of Christ in Scripture? When the church is being led by godly men who are shepherds, who love the people, who pray for the people, who teach the people, who care for the people, should not all people, men and women, want to follow that leadership and, and do everything they can to be what God wants us to be as a church. These are principles that are totally out of sync with our culture and will be worse in the days to come. As that song we sang this morning, don't we see the world getting darker? More difficult, we do. Do we see the glory of Christ? We do. Is he worthy? He is. And he's coming back and he'll set all things right. Let's pray. Father, thank you now for your word. Tough passage, Father. Difficult passage. Some things we don't know, but we know the basic principles clearly. So, Father, I, I pray that you help all of us to apply this to our lives as you would have us apply it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.